All right. Good morning, guys. Uh, today I'm with Dave Griswold uh, and Damian Keeter, and we are going to try to deep dive into kind of looking at this neurologic approach, looking at some of the differences in philosophy on treating pain, uh, whether that's with manual therapy or exercise, and, and why that's created so much conflict within the industry, and why when somebody says, you know, they're going to go get rehab or they're going to get physical therapy, why it looks so different amongst different groups. Um, so if we can dive into pain science and the, neuro the neurology of what's happening, hopefully we can come up with a better, better way to, to consistently treat our clients. Um, you guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so my name is Dave Griswold. I'm a professor at Youngstown State University. Um, I am currently involved in multiple things at the, in our doctorate of physical therapy program, as well as our PhD in health sciences. Um, I still treat patients, so I'm still in the clinic um, at, at, a, at a local uh, a clinic here nearby. Um, and I do a lot of clinical research that looks at um, different neurophysiologic mechanisms. Um, I'm also involved in a lot of different dry needling studies as well. Um, so that's, that takes up a good chunk of, of my time. And I've had the opportunity to, to work with Damien here on his dissertation projects, which are uh, really interesting. And I think really going to provide a lot of insight into um, how we need to start to look at, at patients from a, from a neurologic perspective rather than strictly a biomechanical. My name is Damien Keeter, as Nick said, um, and I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having us here today. I am a physical therapist at the Cleveland VA Medical Center. And as Dave mentioned, I'm also a PhD candidate through Youngstown State University. So I've had the opportunity to work with him along with others and some projects related to pain science, pain adaptability, and kind of how it relates to things in manual therapy and whatnot. So yeah, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. And we've had a lot of talks kind of behind the scenes. So I'm, I'm really excited to kind of see where this, uh, this takes us. And um, I think the hardest part of this is figuring out where to start because it's such a, a topic that you can go very broad or, or very deep. And um, I, think, I think the first question I have is, is why... Why is this discussion important? Uh, this idea of treating the nervous system versus kind of the more traditional biomechanical approach to looking at things. Why is it important that we look for this answer of what's the best way to go? I think, you know, if you don't mind me starting off, Dave, I think, you know, our conversation, Dave and I, our conversation started about this when we started realizing some of the fallacies in the pathoanatomical model and even in the biopsychosocial model and us understanding that, you know, this isn't, we aren't in a place where this all makes sense to us as clinicians, but more importantly to the patients themselves. And so when we dive into, you know, the, the kind of old, older school of thought, the pathoanatomical model, you know, this focusing just on tissues and how this tissue itself, you know, causes this pain experience, we know that in, in things like nociception, that might be the case, but we've come to learn that that model itself has several fallacies, right? So if you have an individual with a true trauma even, yes, that might be that pathoanatomical model might make sense, but then it goes even deeper and we have to say, okay, you know, Dave and I, we've all seen people in the clinic and this person on imaging has this pathoanatomical finding and so does this patient and things are still very, very, very different because we know that there's biological and psychological and social factors that all influence 
that pain experience. Hence the biopsychosocial model, right? I think the biggest fallacy with the biopsychosocial model, in my opinion, is its lack of tangibility. Okay, so we can sit there clinically, you know, research-wise, it's great. You look at this, you say, this makes sense. There's these factors that all influence the pain experience. You know, it, it makes sense. Clinically, when you talk about this model to patients, even using, you know, some of the pain neuroscience education, some of these edu education, you know, evidence-based techniques, I should say, it's not tangible for the patient. The patient says, yes, I get when I'm, when I'm sad, it hurts more. Okay, but they don't understand why that is. Why does this cause this? All right, so in, in all of these, all of the discussions, my discussions anyways with patients on the biopsychosocial model always lead back to this emphasis on the neural system, neurology, the brain, the spinal cord, okay? And when we relate things to that, it's a little bit more understanding for the patient. But I think, and you know, Dave and I, our thoughts are, why are we focusing on the biopsychosocial and why aren't we putting this neurological model at the centerpiece and then discussing, yes, these things have shown to influence the neurological system. Yes, you know, an injury has shown to influence the neurological system. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the neurological system is responsible for determining what's going on. And there's a lot of factors that influence this. And that's kind of what, what sparked this conversation in the first place. I'm sure Dave has more to add to this, but that's kind of where we stand with this right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think how you how you kind of centered that was 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 really key in that we're not we're not trying to say that, you know, the there, there's not some benefits to looking at some tissue problems. That's that's not the point. The point is, is to say, how do those tissue problems affect the neurologic system and how does that impact the assessment and the examination? Because it's not just about treating the neurologic system, it's also about how do you assess it and how do you screen for psychosocial factors and psychological variables that could impact the prognosis of the patient? How do you screen for, for widespread hyperalgesia that we know is a prognostic indicator for who's going to respond um, and it, through pain modulation techniques? So it's really about the, the screening, the examination, and the treatment. So I think I, I do like the, the biopsychosocial model, but I do think that we, we don't, we don't clinicians, and, and certainly it's hard to explain to patients how all of those factors interconnect and interrelate to one another. And I think that we don't understand all of it. We're still learning about it, but I do think that we understand a lot more today than what we did 10 years ago, for sure. Yeah, I mean... I think the other challenge to this whole thing is it's evolving, it's changing, right? Like where that person is day one versus day six is psychologically is so different. I, I just did a um, pop-up clinic at an Orange Theory and um, oh. like just treated clients right after the class. Um, two potential radiculopathies. They're doing Orange Theory coming to, I like, kind of just stopping at my table afterwards, but they've not seen a medical professional. So they're just still cruising along their day right? Versus some of the people that have had the MRI, had the, you know what I mean? Like the way they present emotionally is so different, um, which is fascinating to me. Um, but to your point, Damien, how do you, I would rather see somebody first if they have a disc injury, right? And there's something going on with that nerve pathway. If I see somebody first and I don't like scare the bejesus out of them, I think I'm going to get better outcomes right away. 
I cringe when they've been through that whole medical system and the doctor's already talking about surgery and everything else downstream. But how do you explain that to somebody um, of why, why that emotional component, why that plays in? And then to your point, Dave, how do you assess that that's a real thing? I mean, I think it, but how do you assess it? And then how do you explain why it's happening? So from my standpoint, I, you know, I, I think the most important thing with any patient education that I've found, you know, population I work with, there's a large variability in educational level, okay? And I think the first thing you have to do as a clinician is identify how you need to communicate with that patient in front of you. There's patients that I've given research to, and I've said, hey, this is a research article. This is something you should read. You know, people who are podiatrists, people who have this, you know, understanding of how to critique literature. And then on the other end of things, there's patients who I'm, you know, making analogies related to, you know, some of the Adrian Lau, some of these, you know, therapeutic neuroscience education analogies that he's presented to really kind of, you know, simplify this so that patients understand it. But I think the first thing we, we have to relate to patients is the idea that's breaking this connection between tissue damage and pain. Okay. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, I mean, you can, you can talk to them about how, Hey, some of these patients don't have feet, but their foot hurts. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some of these patients have normal imaging and they have a lot of pain. Some of these patients have a lot of imaging you know, abnormalities, which we've seen time and time and time again in these research studies, and don't have pain. So we know that that input, that tissue damage itself is only one piece of the puzzle. And that's like what I like to emphasize with, emphasize with patients. That stuff is important. That piece is important. But there's a lot of other factors at play that influence this. So typically, one of the things I like to relate to when a patient comes in is I say, you know, what is your pain right now? What is your best pain? What is it, your worst pain? And usually there's some degree of variability. You'll have those every now and then. It's 10 out of 10, stays 10 out of 10, never changes, right? Some, sometimes we get that. But you have this patient that says, you know what? Sometimes it's only a two, sometimes it's an eight. And then I say, do you think that that disc bulge that you have on imaging was different when it was a two out of 10 versus when it was an eight out of 10? And they get this look on their face and they say, well, no, but it was still there. And I said, yes, but your pain intensity changed. Okay. When you're doing things that you're enjoy that are enjoyable to you, when your perception of, you know, what's going on at your back changes, your pain level starts reducing. Okay. So even though that piece of the puzzle has not changed the other pieces of the puzzle, maybe you slept better. Okay. Maybe, you know, maybe you went out and got laid, who knows, maybe something happened in your life that made you happy and made you forget about this complaint. And all of a sudden that pain's not as bad. So, you know, really emphasizing to them that yes, this is important, but there's other pieces at play here. And sometimes these other pieces at play are really what we're changing with physical therapy, not so much that pathoanatomical condition. I also think that patients would rather be told what is wrong with them than even if it's, even if it's a hypothetical guess, then have some ambiguity answer that kind of talks around it, at least from their perspective. So I think that, you know, there was the, a couple of studies that looked at, um, you know, people would rather be diagnosed with cancer than be told that we don't know why, you know, something is wrong with you, why you're having these symptoms. They would rather be diagnosed with cancer. So they would rather be told that we know what's wrong with you than be told that, well, we really don't know. And that's, and what we're, what we're saying is that there's multiple factors that play into why you hurt, 
we don't know which of those factors is the exact cause, right? But we, we do know that these are, these are things that are, are potential possibilities. And I think that there's, when, you, when you're dealing with patients in our medical society, you have to respect the fact that that's what they've been conditioned to think. So that makes it, that makes it even harder, harder on our end. But I, I, I do think what Damien said at the beginning was, was, was absolutely critical in that when you get to learn your patient, you're going to learn what sets them off, what sets the pain off, what sets their condition off, what sets their symptoms off. And I, one of the questions I always ask patients is, is tell me what you think affects your, the pain. Just tell me in your life, not necessarily what positions and movements you're doing, but just tell me some things that, that you know, when, when these things happen in your, in your life, you, you, you tend to feel worse. And then you can start to get an idea of, and, and then when you ask patients questions, I think that's when you get to the real answers, you know, in terms of what's, what's bothering them, not biasing them, not talking them down the path that you want them to go down, but asking them open-ended questions about all the variables that are impacting, you know, the, the, this, this condition, why they're there. And when you do that, I think you, you, you tend to learn more about what are the factors. I think kind of touching on that, I think one of the big follow-up questions to that to ask a patient isn't even just, you know, what do you think is contributing to this or what makes it worse, what makes it better? But then what do you think you need? Mm -hmm. You know, so many clinicians will sit there and say, this is what you need. This is what we're going to do for you. But your patient has an idea ahead of time. And those patient expectations, you know, it's one of the pillars of evidence-based practice. And oftentimes that can be a moderator of treatment and in fact can, can determine if what you're doing is successful or not. Okay, I feel like I need ultrasound. Guess what? Ultrasound may work for that patient. Okay, that might be a patient that ultrasound truly has an effect. Do we know that it's you know not as much of a biomechanical effect and maybe more neurophysiological and placebo-based? Yeah, that's what evidence supports, but guess what? If that's what the patient needs and it makes them better walking out of the clinic and gets them to return to the ability to do functional things, who am I to say that we can't do those things, right? Yep. And on the flip end of that is, is you're trying to, to coerce patients into treatments that you want to do or that you're comfortable with, but they don't actually, maybe the patient isn't in favor of it. Maybe the evidence doesn't support its use in that particular case. So, you know, it's, you, you leave it open. I think that that's a more appropriate way of handling informed consent anyways. Yeah. You, you and I have talked about this, Dave, but I have it on my intake um, for our clients. What do you think you need? Uh, joint manipulation, dry needling, cupping, you tell me, right? Are kind of the choices. Yeah. Because um, then you know right away what their expectations are before they walk in that door. Um, and, you know, we, we look at this in, in the, our one manual therapy course, but your, your approach or your facial demeanors may affect those treatments just as much as anything. So let alone you trying to talk somebody into something, um, they're going to put up walls, right? Um, but I, I think, and to, to your point as well, Damien and Dave, like getting them to actually tell you that story is the other thing I think is so important. Um, I was just talking with one of our therapists, like there's the subjective, they tell you what they think you need to know. And then it's like, okay, tell me the next layer of that story, because, you know, what's, what's left? There's more to that story. Um, there's deeper layers that maybe they don't want you to think they're crazy or they're way off in left field. But until you get to that layer, man, it's really hard to figure out where their mental state is at. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then when you, you asked me earlier, 
<clears throat> how do you assess it? You know, I think I think part of it in terms of the catastrophization that you were mentioning before is I, I think, you know, imaging findings can bother some people. You know, I think that imaging findings don't really necessarily do much to the psyche of some patients. So when you, I, I think your internal gestalt as a, as a clinician kind of tells you, you, you can kind of pick up on if a person keeps revisiting that conversation, they keep bringing it up and, and wanting to discuss it further. And, um, you know, or, or they, maybe they've had like a radiograph and now, you know, you, you told them, listen, it's, it's, this is normal stuff. This is just a life well lived. Don't worry about it. This is not going to impact, you know, you moving forward. And then they're like, well, do you think I need an MRI? Do you think I need to get, you know, another, a different type of imaging? It's like, you, when you hear that and they keep recircling back to that, it, it kind of tells you that, that they're looking for that answer. Yeah, oftentimes I love catching those patients before they get the imaging done. Cause we get those questions, you know, working in a facility where they can get any imaging they want and they're not paying any money for it. And there's no insurance, you know, it's a frequent thing for people saying, Hey, I need an MRI. Hey, I need a CT scan. So, I, I mean, when I get those patients that are just adamant about, hey, I need an MRI, I have to have an MRI, I'll say, you know, I think that's that's a great idea. Do you want me to tell you what it's going to show? And they'll give me this look like, what do you mean? I say, I can tell you the, you know, 15 things it's probably going to show on this MRI. They might find something else that's relevant. They might not, you know, but ultimately these things are normal age-related changes, okay? These are these are things that they're going to see in almost every single person that they image. And they probably have been there for years prior to you having pain. And I think at least having that conversation with them gets them out of seeing a report that looks like this from an MRI, you know, saying all of these things are wrong with me to saying, you know, maybe this one piece of this might be influencing this, but I'm not broken. Okay. These are normal age related changes. And obviously there's the conversations that can be had relating it to gray hair wrinkles. You know, that's, we're all aware of those. And I think those are great conversations to have too for certain patients, but I think, you know, they getting across the normality of these abnormal findings is important for us. Yeah. And that goes, you know, we talk about, we're talking about this from the patient's perspective, but also from the clinician's perspective is, is you still have, you hear stories of clinicians that they, they strictly treat by what the image finding was identified, you know? And I think that even today, clinicians still tend to in, inappropriately or incorrectly use non-relevant imaging findings or even biomechanical palpation models with upslips, downslips, in-flare, out-flare, SIJ abnormalities. There is no such thing as a normal SIJ. I, I just, I don't understand what we're looking for. It just doesn't, I mean, we have to move on from that. And I, I think, you know, I think one of the big problems is some people are so embedded in these models. I mean, I've had conversations with, you know, coworkers who still follow these models. And even you educate them about these things. You talk to them, you have a conversation about it. And there's this, there's this part of them that's just so stuck on, I've been treating this way for so long and I've seen patients get better, which they have, you know, patients get better under these models, but you're the, the specificity and these kind of, you know, oh, there's a anterior and I'm going to post here and I'm all of these things. I mean, you know, it's, it's just doesn't hold its weight. I mean, I have, we, we, I have a coworker I work with who he finds anterior and posterior anominates in 30 year old military veterans all day long, all day long. And, you know, he's treating these things and some people are getting better, you know, but 
the the idea is for most of these patients they just need to move or they just need to strengthen some of this tissue and they just need to get some of these joints moving it's not a specific i need to correct these things the problem with these models is once you put the idea in a patient's head that you know i'm feeling this there's something wrong here or you know i'm seeing this anomaly there's something wrong here that's just as bad as giving them an mri finding that shows right that you're sure. creating that same you know kinesiophobia for the patient because they are you know they, they create this idea in their mind that they're they have something wrong with them. Yeah, I think uh, I've talked to I think you, Dave, and Frank as well. Like Mulligan, the old well, we got to reposition the joint, and that's what makes it turn. And you're like, well, it probably doesn't happen biomechanically like that, but the technique is still pretty darn sound, right? Like Mulligan works. Uh, you know, m- manipulation can work at times. So how much of that? And and I think muscle energy techniques, whatever you want to talk about, right? Obviously, they've been around because they work for some people in some situations. Can we reframe the conversation of what we think they're doing is, I guess, my stance on that. Um, I I mean, I I think it'd be hard to argue that I can't snag somebody's neck and get their headache to go away. Um, Do I really think I'm repositioning their C1, C2? No, I probably putting some different neurologic input that allows things to relax, blah, blah, blah. How do we reframe that across the board? I think what, what, from a starting point, I think people need to understand that pain is a chemical experience. That that's first and foremost, mm-hmm. because when you understand that it's, it's, it's chemical in nature, then you understand that it, it's not required to be shifting and moving things. And I tell my PT students this all the time, you know, early on in PT school, everybody feels like they need to move things and shift things. And if they're not getting these massive joint movements, they don't feel like they're doing anything. And I, one of the first things I teach them in MSK is you guys have to understand that you're treating a nervous system. You're not treating a joint, you're treating the nervous system. And so when you, when you under, when they start to understand that they start to understand how more gentle grade one, grade twos, mulligan techniques, how those can actually have a positive influence on pain and nociception in patients. It's not just about moving stuff, you know? And I think that that's one way, that's one thing that I talk to to patients about is understanding that chemical nature to why they feel what they feel. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of these techniques work. I mean, like, like you've already said, a lot of these techniques, the Mulligan stuff, the Maitland stuff, you know, all of these, the McKenzie stuff, you know, all of this stuff works. I think the, the rationale behind why you're applying it is what needs to change. And I think it has to a degree. I mean, you know, I've taken, you know, Mulligan courses and they've said, you know, Hey, this is what we're proposing. We'd like to do. However, why it works, we have no idea. You know, there might be this psychological aspect of it. There might be this, you know, neurological aspect of it. And I think that's where taking this treatment, applying the same treatment, maybe the same direction you were before, but with the idea of you're you're reteaching the body how to move. And that's usually how I relate this to patients. Patients don't need a, your C1 is locked up. I'm going to free it up. I tell patients, this stuff doesn't want to move. Let's reteach some of this stuff how to move. Now, when I say stuff, I know I'm thinking neurological system, soft tissue, joints, the whole nine yards. But to a patient, they may interpret that as this one area right here. I don't care. If, they, if it's what gets it to work, great. I'm not going to lie to them and tell them, you know, I'm, I'm popping your C1 back into place and it's been out of place. But if that's what they want to believe, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed into this idea of let's get this stuff, this area moving normally again. And then 
let's keep it moving normal again. And when, when you use that terminology, you know, normal, returning to normal movement, they start realizing that it's not a harmful thing. Their body may perceive some of these motions as harmful, but when you apply manual therapy or you apply any of these techniques in a manner of returning to normal mechanics, they lose some of that fear of, you know, they're trying to force me in a direction it's not supposed to go. And so I think a lot of it's not even how much the, you know, the technique itself, it's how we theorize it, you know, and the, the means we use it under and then how we educate patients on it. Yeah, that's where I think is, that's the golden ticket is understanding who are people that are likely going to do well with manual therapy and who are people that are likely not going to do well. And that's circling back to the start of our conversation and being able to screen for variables that we know prognostically, prognostically have implications to response. Who do you think would not do well? In terms of manual therapy, pain yeah. modulation in general? I'm gonna use manual, let's stick with manual. Like who do you, what kind of clients do you think wouldn't respond to manual therapy or don't respond to manual therapy? Amy, do you want to go first and then I'll... I, I don't think right now we have a great model to identify that. I think, you know, we've had these proposed clinical prediction rules for a lot of manipulations and mobilizations that haven't, you know, been significantly validated. I think we know that it's a, you know, we know that, again, it takes us back to there's the biological, psychological, social factors that are all going to influence this. They've done several studies to show some individuals are adaptable to pain, to true noxious stimuli, and some individuals aren't. Okay, so some of us, you, you sustain a noxious input and you'll actually, you know, feel a reduction in pain over time. And other individuals, that pain level will increase over time. All right, so we have to think that there's some underlying factors, you know, for, for individuals to make these people respond differently. And I think this is where a lot of the current status of manual therapy, one of the biggest, you know, ways that we determine if a manual therapy is, is indicated for a patient is how they respond in the clinic. You know, test retest, you know, this patient response model, you know, do they get a reduction in pain within clinic? Do they get an improvement in motion within clinic? Does that sustain between session? And, you know, it, it sounds terrible because it's like, how do you identify manual therapy responders? Oh, well, they're the ones that respond to manual therapy, but that's, that's the current status of where we're at. And I think that that's where we need to start investigating is from a, as Dave said, from a neurological standpoint, not from a, you know, biomechanical, this person's hypomobile, this person isn't. It's from a neurological standpoint, what did this person have, you know, from a biological, psychological, social standpoint, influenced the neurological system that made them respond, whereas these individuals did not. And then I think that can answer your question, but we're just not there yet. In, in, a, in a more in a simplistic way, I think about it like this. What, what are the factors that can impact the, the central and peripheral nervous system? And, and so chronicity of pain, you know, being one. Um, individuals that have positive quantitative sensory testing findings and secondary widespread hyperalgesia, that, that impacts it. People with psychological premorbid status, so generalized anxiety disorder, um, people with emotional disturbances, um, even, even higher level psychiatric problems, all of those things impact how the nervous system is going to perceive what we're doing with them. And so I think any screening tool that you could use or examination test that you can do to, to figure out, is there upregulation of the system? And is that going to be a temporary upregulation or is that going to be a more long-term upregulation? I think could be important information in determining responders and non-responders. Yeah, that's a super interesting topic to me because 
I, I've kind of taken the stance that manual therapy is probably one of the biggest sensory inputs we can put into the system, right? So if, if pain is this chemical sensory experience, touch is going to activate the system peripherally centrally as much as anything. Mm-hmm. Now you got to vary your types of touch and all that kind of stuff. But on the same boat, I think there's people that close proximity, physical touch is almost uh, gives them anxiety, right? They, they're fearful of that, that closer proximity. Um, I think in my setting, marketing kind of just weeds those people out, right? Like we're going to put hands on you. So then we just never see them. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when I do a pop-up, for example, you can see people like circling way away from the table. Um, and so, you know, it just becomes interesting to me of if that person walked into my clinic, would I be as effective as somebody who's like, and in, in likes the, the close proximity and touch? And how do you screen that? Yeah. Same with exercise. Yeah. Good point. (laughs) I think oftentimes that's not something you can even establish when you first meet a patient. I think a lot of the times over that therapeutic alliance, over a couple of sessions, you need to establish that. I mean, I'm kind of in the complete opposite setting of you, Nick. I mean, you know, from my standpoint, I'm getting some of these patients that they don't want me touching them. I mean, I have some patients that I am not going to put my hands around your neck. You know, some of these patients have experienced things in the military where they do not want somebody, you know, even standing behind them doing a mulligan technique, you know. So from that standpoint, there's a lot of this gauging things like eye contact, gauging this, you know, throughout the conversation with them kind of establishing or understanding, you know, what does this patient, what is this patient going to allow me to do for them? And then within that, you know, allowance, provide what you can, because simply put, a lot of patients can get better with manual therapy, can also get better with exercise can also get better with patient education, you know, on, on doing things. I mean, a lot of, we'd love to think that a lot of the effects of what we do are specific to the technique we provide, but simply put, it's not. A lot of the same mechanisms of why manual therapy record on this. All right, yeah, we're good. Um, what the heck were we even talking about? How, uh, why technique does kind of sort of matter still? Oh, you were talking about all the exercise. Oh, no, 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 your no, clients. Your yeah, clients no, we and how talking, okay. you couldn't do touch. Okay, yeah. So I'll kind of I'll kind of start over with that whole deal rather than you trying to catch it mid sentence and then you can kind of edit it in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think Nick, you know, coming from where you're at in a, in a in a clinic that very much advertises manual therapy and things along those lines, my clinical you know population is very 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 different. You know, I mean, I'm, I have individuals that are military personnel who I wouldn't dream of putting my hands on their neck and laying them down on the table. You know, I mean, so some of these patients, I think you, you have to establish not just on the first session, but over a number of sessions, what this patient is going to allow you to do. And it kind of works into what we talked about before, you know, what are their expectations for what's going to get them better? And you may have a patient that expects that thinks they need manual therapy that expects, you know, just feels stuck. It needs to be popped, but they don't want you to touch them. They want, and it might be several sessions of you building up that therapeutic alliance and getting to that point of saying I can provide them this technique that I think will be very beneficial for them. I think it's also important at the same time to realize that simply put a lot of the stuff that we can fix with manual therapy, you can fix with other stuff and vice versa. The mechanisms behind why manual therapy works, why exercise works, why some neuromuscular re-education and education works, they all target these same pain relieving, you know, descending pathways that reduce pain. And so from that, from a neurophysiological standpoint, I would say very rarely is there a patient 
that manual therapy is the only answer or that this specific exercise is the only answer. And so I think gauging not only, you know, what the best treatment is, but if that best treatment in your mind isn't a feasible option for this patient, what else could you provide them at the time? And that, that's kind of where we have to work at in the setting we are, you know, working with veterans. I think that last statement is so key because I think early in my career, it was always like, well, this is what I do and this is how it gets better. But figuring out like, okay, well, this might work for, but this person doesn't want to do that. Um, so what are my next, what are my next options, um, to accomplish the same goal? That's yeah. I like the way you said that. <clears throat> I, I do think that, so I've kind of just gone with this model of pain at some level is neurogenic excitation, right? We're getting increased feedback and whether that's increased feedback from the peripheral system or the brain is perceiving it as more intense. And I usually use some stupid alarm system analogy, but one way or another that's heightened. How do we make it feel safe or how do we, we calm down that, that hypersensitivity? And, and I think it's okay, that's cool. But then there's times where it does seem to matter how specific it is. Like one exercise does the trick or one manual therapy does the trick. How do you explain that? I, I don't think we can. I don't think, you know, and this is one of the issues with a lot of the studies on, you know, specificity of things like manual therapy. And I just recently wrote a, a blog post for JOSPT on this. And, you know, this idea of specificity and exercise and, and manual treatments, you know, this idea that we're targeting one specific tissue with one specific technique, one specific direction at a certain force, you know, it's shown that that's just not the case. That's not saying that there's patients that a, you know, C3 mobilization won't improve them, but a C4 will. I've had those patients. We've all had those patients. There are patients that need a specific technique at a specific level, right? But even if that patient needs a specific technique, you cannot say that the one aspect of that technique is what fixed the patient, right? Because like you said, from a neurological standpoint, we know that the brain and the spinal cord have a large influence on pain. So what's to say that your closing that joint is what fixed the patient versus you putting pressure through that specific multifidi muscle that was just pissed off and then therefore was able to, you know, reduce a little bit versus you applying some degree of no, no susceptive input at an area that needed it for their brain to say, hey, let's free this up and allow this to move to a point that this patient, you pressed in an area where they felt like the problem was, and it was purely their, you know, placebo-based neurophysiological response that said, now I can move. There's no way for us to differentiate that outside of if we were to do a functional MRI of the joint and the neck at the same time as a functional MRI of the brain. And if anyone has the funds to do that, good for you. <laughs> That would be cool. But outside of that, I think, you know, a lot of it's, it's, you know, finding a go, taking it back to that, what works for that specific patient in the clinic. And it might be a relatively specific technique, but we have to understand that even specificity, even attempting specificity is not as specific as we think. I think that's my, as a, whatever, I think that's my struggle with manual therapy research. It's like, well, this doesn't work. Well, maybe, you know, I mean, there's so many variables in how the person's, my facial expression, the setting I'm in, um, just not even like technical things, but just the setting that that matters. Um, where I've had situations where it's like, 
well, it wasn't working when my thumb was this way, but when I did that, it changed the whole thing because the sensory experience of my thumb rolling this way versus that way changed their perception of what that felt like tenfold. So do I think it's because I pushed on a different, whatever, I moved the joint slightly different? Absolutely not. But I was able to tap into that sensory input differently, get a different response on, on all the levels that you referenced. So how do you research that? Like, how do you put that into a, a study? So part of the problem is, is that when we talk about there's multiple factors that are interplaying with one another that are causing some result and you want to study that the more the more variables you want to investigate the bigger your sample size needs to be and and for the most part most studies are very underpowered in terms of sample and, and because it becomes a logistical and a resource problem we just you know it's hard to get a, a sample sizes of a few thousand right you're not it's just not going to happen in, in manual therapy trials but you know, so when you're looking at all those different factors, you, you know, from a statistical standpoint, you need a big sample size in order to really study that well. Um, but do we need to do, like, so my, I guess my question is, is can we, can we simplify the concept in a way that is feasible to study? And that's where I think Damien's research is actually going is a way of, of phenotyping patients to determine who are the people that are more likely to respond versus not respond from things like manual therapy. Certainly exercise could be parallel that as well. But I, I think if you simplify it and, and, and say, okay, does this person have certain neurologic factors that make them less likely to respond versus this person doesn't have those factors, this would be a better probably treatment option if they're good with it. Damien, I'm not familiar with your research. What, what exactly are you doing? Yeah, so basically what we're doing is we're looking at trying to identify from a, from a phenotypic standpoint. So basically underlying factors. When a patient walks into the clinic the first day, before you do anything with them, what biological, psychological, and social factors do they have that influences their pain experience? And then basically it takes latent and cluster class analysis to basically create these groups. of so this individual has, you know, high catastrophizing, high psychological profile, and you know, this, this certain type of qualitative sensory testing, they may be more, more responsive to this technique versus this individual. The beauty of this is they've done, basically, you know, they've done more pharmacological based than manual therapy or exercise based, but they've done these studies and they basically said, we now know, you know, what factors influence treatment effect. Okay, and I know years ago, um, Bielowski and, and some of those individuals have done a couple great reviews on looking at these, you know, moderating and mediating factors of manual therapy. But now we have this written diagram from a pharmacological standpoint of these are the factors which have shown to influence pharmaceutical outcomes. And so if they influence something where you're, where you're you know, giving a patient a chemical, we got to assume that they're going to definitely influence something where we're relying on the body to modify pain without an external chemical. So basically, it looks at factors such as sleep, stress, fatigue, depression, anxiety, all these psychological and social factors, patient expectations. But then furthermore, it looks at these pain characteristics and kind of get into what Dave was talking about. It looks at, you know, hyperalgesia, quantitative sensory testing, pain modulation. 
how does this person respond to noxious stimuli? Kind of getting back into some of that adaptability stuff I discussed. And it, and it looks at, you know, per this pain profile, this entire pain profile, based on this biological, psychological, social factors, what is this person walking in with? And what do they need? And I don't think it's ever going to get to a point where it's cookie cutter. I don't think it's ever, PT is not a cookie cutter profession where we're ever going to get to a point where this is on paper, what this person has, this is the one treatment route they need. We're just, we're never going to get there. There's too many factors that influence, you know, everything we do. I don't think the, the things that tell us this is the one specific treatment this person needs is ever going to come to fruition. But what I think we can get to is a point where we can, you know, clinically assess these things and say, this is a person who might benefit more from hands-on versus hands-off. And on the contrary, this is a person who might benefit more from hands-off treatment. And I think right now, a lot of that is based on, you know, theoretical, oh, I just feel like this patient needs this. We're asking them, you know, what do you feel like you need? But I think there's a lot of factors we're missing with that. I think, you know, once we work more towards that phenotypic assessment and we're able to identify a patient's overall profile, not their clinical profile, not, you know, the, the clinical prediction rule based, you know, these are the, all the anatomical findings I'm finding during the exam. You know, those biological aspects of it are more based on the neurological findings, you know, when it comes to phenotyping them, the phenotyping versus these, you know, biomechanical findings of the exam. But to answer your question, I don't think we're able to, you know, get to a point where the one treatment option is going to be best for any one person. And even kind of touching back to what you were talking about earlier, Nick, with a different hand position, we have to keep in mind with every intervention we provide, there's likely a biomechanical effect, a neurological effect, and a psychological effect. And these can't be separated, okay? So when I mentioned earlier about, you know, doing an MRI of the brain, MRI of the tissue at the same time, you know, there's so many factors that influence pain at every single level and our treatments modify things at that peripheral level, at the spinal cord level, at the supraspinal level. And, you know, I don't think there's ever gonna be a point where we can separate those things and say, this one biomechanical factor is what matters because congruently these other things are occurring that are allowing this pain relief as well. I, I like I like that I like the idea of this because I'm just speculating, but I would bet that most of the treatments that get provided are just based on the therapist training. Like whoever you happen to walk in the door, if you're a patient, whoever you walk in the door and see, whatever that person's good at is what you're going to get, whether that's manual therapy or exercise or or whatever. Um, so I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by that, and like I'm in such a world where you're getting hands-on stuff if you walk in our door, right? That's just part of our pitch. That's part of our, that's what we do. Um, and so we try to vary the type of manual therapy based on the presentation. Um, but we're going to put hands on everybody that walks in. That's part of our model, right? Um, so it's, it's really interesting to me. Dave, what are your thoughts coming at it from the, I don't know, research perspective or from the university perspective? Well, I, you know, the, the whole, the whole idea of this neuroanatomical assessment and treatment model, I, I really think it's, it's where we have to go because it, you, it gives you a much, I think, better understanding of ways to look at the different factors that are involved in the patient's condition. But at a, at an entry level, standpoint now you have you know they're not gonna they're not gonna ask these questions on the board exam you know type of thing so 
you know, it's it's anytime that you this is going to likely be at the start, you know, more of a, a post grad training and and um, philosophy and education. Um, but I think that if if we don't do this and, and if we don't go this neurologic pathway here, we're going to we're going to continue to have the same limitations that we had 10, 15, 20 years ago. It, it has to evolve because of all the limitations that we've that we've already talked about. Um, and then we have to we have to study it. We have to look and see, you know, fine tuning phenotyping patients. Can we phenotype patients? Do they respond the same in manual therapy as they do in pharmacologic studies? You know, it, there's a lot of information that's unknown even about what we're discussing. But from a from a foundation standpoint, it, it makes a lot of sense and it moves us away from the pitfalls of the old model of, of pathoanatomical nature. Yeah, and I think, you know, Nick, you kind of touched on the idea, you know, coming into your clinic, you know, most of the people get manual therapy. And I think that, you know, again, there's a lot of different techniques that can get people better, that can get our patients better. I think one of the problems we're dealing with now, you know, is this idea of, people getting stuck in the models that they understand and the models that they know and feeling like I am right and everyone else is wrong. Okay. We kind of have this divide within physical therapy, you know, and I mean, even, I even saw it in some of my recent publications, you know, even in this, even in this JOSBT blog that I did on specificity, a lot of people coming after me for this idea of, well, manual therapy is still effective. And I, you know, I have to defend myself in the aspect of I'm not, I use manual therapy every day. Manual therapy is great because somebody has a different opinion about this from you doesn't mean I'm right or you're right. It just means we're seeing things through a different lens. And oftentimes I think people, you know, we look for this uh, clinicians, you know, we look for this confirmation bias in everything we do. You know, I see it in the clinic. I see it with the, you know, with the research that the clinicians I work with want to read. I'm going to look for research that supports what I already believe. And then by the end of the day, I'm going to feel like I'm right and you're wrong. Okay, but we have to take a step back oftentimes and say, you know, there's not a right or wrong, you know, these these exercise only people, these manual therapy only people, they're looking at things through a different lens. And we need to, we need to keep in mind, you know, what is fact, what is, you know, our facts are based on what we've been told, and what we, you know, what has kind of been ingrained in us throughout the time we were, you know, created as physical therapists. I mean, you know, I, I like to reiterate this to our residents and, you know, is the sky blue? Is that a fact? Yes. Why? Why is the sky blue? Because when we were kids, that's what we were told. And, and we teach our kids that, right? That's just something we're told. Right now, you know, I mean, when I was raised, there was an extra planet that's no longer there. There was a fact that there was this many planets. And then all of a sudden, Pluto is no longer a planet. I know this has nothing to do with physical therapy, right? But facts change. And all of a sudden, what was a fact is no longer a fact, right? So Facts are based on what we were taught, what we were told, and what's occurring around us at the time. So a lot of these people that still do, taking it back to this SIJ conversation, still do some of these anterior, posterior, nominate, these are the facts that they learn, and they find things to support their facts, and they are closed-minded oftentimes, as are most of us, to other opinions, because this is the way we believe, and anyone who doesn't believe the same way as us is wrong. And so I think this, this kind of tribalism that we're seeing within the physical therapy profession, oftentimes, regardless of which tribe you're in, which, which beliefs you have, take a step back and realize, you know, look at, read some of this research that goes against what you believe. 
And rather than looking for this fallacies in it, you know, take a step back, read it and say, this person is looking at these things from a different perspective. And I think understanding that, that there's very little in our profession that's right, or, you know, specifically as a one way of doing things really can open the mind to the idea of, you know, our, our profession doesn't have, you don't have to do one thing. It's not this cookie cutter profession where there's one way to fix a lot of the stuff we do. Yeah, I don't, I don't think my stance is you have to do manual therapy. It's just as a business, that's what we do, right? Like right. I, I wasn't, you're going to come find that. us for that niche. That, that's <laughs> I, I kind was, of our, wasn't... that's our, that's our world, you know, yeah. um, and most I, of our people. I, I wasn't, I, I don't but, want it to sound like I was bashing that by any means. Manual therapy, I yeah. mean, it's a great tool. And oftentimes putting your hands on patients is needed. And, you know, I use it every single day, but, you know, I, and I think it can go just as much towards the people that, you know, there's people that will sit there and bash everything manual therapy because they can get it with exercise. And there's patients, there's therapists, their hands off no matter what, because, oh, it's going to create some reliance. Says who? Where, where, you know, where's, where's the stuff that supports that? I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of this kind of ideologies around all these different tribes, not just manual therapy, but all these different ideas. And, and I think it's just an open-mindedness across the board is needed and understanding again, these similarities of these, you know, these, these techniques we provide, the similarities of what they're doing, especially as it relates to pain, they're all doing the same thing. It's just through different, you know, different ways of getting these same neurophysiological effects. And I think coming up with a, with a comprehensive neurologic assessment, neuroanatomical assessment is really where these different philosophies can start to relate to one another and understand each other a little bit better. It's kind of like where, you know, pain neuroscience meets manual therapy, meets exercise, you know, meets the things that we can do to help, to help patients, all the different philosophies, all the different interventions and assessment models that are out there. If we have this conceptual framework for them to understand this is how you evaluate centrally, this is how you evaluate peripherally, understand that you cannot separate the two out, that they go hand in hand with one another, but you're, you're able to assess and evaluate the upregulation of the, of the system itself. You know, Frank said something real interesting um, last time we, we spoke. He was, he, he, when he teaches at a course, he, he talks about the um, nervous system being the sixth vital sign. You know, and, and it makes a lot of sense because, you know, your nervous system controls everything, everything, vascular, it, you know, all visceral, all the different conditions that a person can experience will have neurologic implications to it. And I think that it really does give you a lot of good information about that person to be able to assess it. Yeah. I think even sinking in, we talked about pharmacology there briefly, but even sinking into that, like we're trying to accomplish this. Sometimes we're trying to accomplish similar goals with our exercise manual therapy as they're trying to do pharmacologically, right? Whether you're talking about NSAIDs or like some of these new CGRP blockers with trigeminal nerve input, um, we're trying to accomplish the same goals. And I think that's where it gets really interesting is if we're all looking at the same stuff and just different attack points of how we're going to accomplish that. And then to you guys' point, how do we put that person in the right category right do they need pharmacological help do they need manual therapy do they need exercise um who's going to be that quarterback who's going to be that uh damien <laughs> <laughs> I, and i and but i think at the end of the day i think when it comes to pain complaints i mean this has already been said a hundred times over for chronic pain but i think when it comes to pain complaints 
it's based on the patient's needs, based on what they feel like they need. And more importantly, you need this multimodal approach, this multidisciplinary approach to pain. I think, you know, too often we would like to think that we want to be, you know, the quarterback in that situation. We want to be the only person involved in this patient's care. But oftentimes you were able to identify, you know, through, through these sessions, we're able to identify, hey, this is a patient that would benefit from this. This is a patient who would benefit from some CBT. Okay, this is a patient who may benefit from you know, a joint injection. I mean, you know, we, we know that physical therapy, I would love to fix every patient that walks in the door. And anyone who, any therapist who says they fix every patient who walks in the door is full of it, because that's just not the case. Okay, we all have those patients that we just cannot fix. And when you get those patients, you have to understand the complexities of pain. And, you know, we're, again, one of the pieces of this puzzle, but there's so many other pieces that can get involved. You know, I, I think that it's it's never going to be a get this person to this one provider. I think it's going to be identifying based on these, you know, based on their phenotype, based on, you know, hey, if you're not sleeping well, maybe we got to get you to somebody to address that. Okay, hey, maybe if you're not eating well, we got to get you to somebody to address that, you know, identifying through some of this phenotyping what what variables we need to address, where we need to go with this and determine, you know, what physical therapy's role is in this. And I mean, that's one of the beauties of the VA system is, you know, and in a lot of the bigger healthcare systems is I can just send a message to on the computer to somebody and get this person seen within a couple of days, right? In the private sector, oftentimes it's more complicated, you know, getting somebody to see a psychologist, a pain psychologist or something along those lines. But I think once we understand that, that you know, what pieces of the puzzle this person needs to fix their or to, you know, manage their pain complaints, then that's the first step. And then I think from there, you know, kind of identifying, you know, self-management techniques, identifying where, you know, what our role is as physical therapists in their, in their treatment plan. You know, is it more of a education-based? Is it more of an exercise-based? And I, I don't think, again, I don't think there's ever going to be a cookie cutter. This is the way it has to be. I think it just is going to be more of this, you know, trying to put together the pieces of their, their pain experience throughout the sessions we're seeing them. Yeah, in the private world, the patients are making their own little teams, right? They have their nutritionist, they have their personal trainer exercise, group exercise, whatever they do. They have, a lot of them have psychologists, but they, they're kind of responsible for finding their own little, you know, and over time I've created networks of people that I know and trust will kind of spit, but it becomes very interesting, just like in PT, every field has its tribes right and you can get a very different experience depending on what you see um, even within you know just like us everything has it and it's it's hard it's hard to find the network of people yeah i, I think one of the biggest issues with the tribalism is you're seeing a lot of these different <laughs> groups that are so worried about promoting the way they feel and bringing down other groups and other mentalities you know, you're seeing these papers that are these research publications that are being written without a purpose of, you know, trying to prove if A is better than B, but with the purpose of, you know, making sure A is better than B. And in an aspect of I'm not doing this study to see which one's better. I'm doing this study to prove this. Right. And, and it's a problem because these studies, these things just make our profession as a whole on research look questionable when you have studies sitting there saying this isn't beneficial you know manual therapy isn't isn't effective you're going to see that you know years down the road trickle down to things like you know insurance rates 
and reimbursement, things like that. And I think that's where, you know, I mean, even when we talk about something like tri-needling and the, and the problems that that has right now, as far as, you know, reimbursement and, and things along those lines, it's, you know, if we were to work collectively and determine, yes, you know, we, there's some disagreement on, you know, A, B, C, D, but this is an effective treatment technique, all of a sudden, we're able to provide research supporting it as overall, you know, regardless of if it's breaking up a trigger point or whatever. Okay, once you get research to support these things, it, it gives value to our profession. And so I think that's the that's one of the things that you know we need to be careful with any form of you know tribalism or any form of you know saying that this is right and everything else is wrong is you're you're effectively damaging an aspect of our own profession when you do that. So. Yeah, I do think our profession's in a bit of an identity crisis as far as the public doesn't know what we do, right? I, I do a pop-up again last this yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind, but of the, I think I saw 14 or 15 people kind of in that little morning period, none of them had seen a physical therapist for their pain, not a single one. Um, they go to their massage therapist, they go to the chiropractor, um, and then when I told them I was a physical therapist, they were mind boggled because it's just not what they expect from our profession, right? So there is a, there is a branding thing in, in the public, in the private sector, um, as far as what, what we have to offer. And I think the fact, we don't have answers, answers for everything, but I think the fact that as a profession, we're having this conversation is enlightening to me, right? Like we're talking about is it neuro? Is it mechanical? Is it this? We're not like stuck pigeonholed into something. So I'm excited about that side of the profession. Um, but the tribalism side is, is hard to, is hard to kind of sink in with, but um, it'll be interesting to see in five, 10 years, you know, where are we as a brand and does the public seek us out for that opinion or not? Because it's interesting right now. <clears throat> Yeah, I think I think a lot of that kind of, you know, is, is it's going to be up to us to, you know, I mean, a lot of people think very similar to the to the way we're all talking or the three of us are talking right now. I mean, a lot of people feel this way about our profession, about, you know, the things we utilize about, you know, a lot of this stuff we spoke about. And I think that over the years, my hope is that we're able to, you know, push ourselves forward as frontline providers to deal with pain and complaints you know, the person you go to when you have a pain complaint, as it is in some other countries. But I think a lot of that's based on what our profession as a whole, not even what the three of us do, you know, but what our profession as a whole does to move forward. And I think, you know, there's, there's people that are so stuck in their ways that they're trying to hold the ship back while we're trying to move forward into that bigger role. And so, like you said, I'm excited to see where it goes. A little scared, but at the same time, excited to see where it goes. Yeah, you just need you need young, young, good leaders that are going to be around and, and they have the drive and the ambition to push that message. There's just there's too many people that, as you guys mentioned, they they want to form an argument to disprove and to devalue an individual and and. If that's going to be people's approach, then that the, the, I don't think the future would be very bright. You know, I think that we, it has to be a collective effort and I think it has to be a supportive community in order to make this move forward in a, in a positive way. But um, social media, you know, that's, that's really where uh, 
as good as it is in some ways, it has a lot of, of negative to it as well. Um, and in terms of branding PT, and when I when I read some of the the social media messages out there, I'm just it's it's not helping. It's not helping in a lot of ways. I think when when it comes, I mean, this is a whole nother we we could have a whole nother podcast on this. Right. <laughs> you know, ultimately, when it comes to social media stuff, I mean, regardless of you know what they're talking about, you have to keep in mind that many of these individuals are being paid for their opinion. Okay, yeah, you know, in, in, through these different platforms, based on followers, based on response rate, and you can look up how much these people make. Okay, it's it's public knowledge. You're able to Google it and see how much people make per post. A recent publication I had. It has my email address on this publication. I have not received one email to me discussing this publication. I have not received one tweet directed to me discussing this publication. But yet there's people talking smack about this all over Twitter. Okay, but these people aren't doing this to have a conversation about it. They don't want to make, you know, an actual point. They don't want to change anything. They want to cause a stir. And that's what you see with a lot of this stuff is, is it influence? Is it social influence? Or is it social ignorance? You know, is, is it this idea of, you know, you're just trying to poke the bear. You're just trying to start a fire to cause, you know, a little ruckus to get people to reply. Because guess what? Every time somebody likes it, every time somebody replies, it's money in your pocket. So I think, you know, from a, from a clinician standpoint, you have to look at these individuals as salesmen. You should trust individuals who are toting all this information on social media. They should be trusted as much as a car salesman. That's what their job is. They're selling you an ideology. Is it right or wrong? They don't care. It's putting money in their pocket. Yeah, and it's a one-way conversation. It's it's not a discussion because, they, you know, they post something and and you never hear from them again. It's like, it's like a one, they just, they want to get their information out there. Then they want everybody else to feed in underneath it. It's, it's, it's yeah. In a lot of ways, it's not, it's really not helpful. It's only hurtful. And I think there it's important to differentiate. There's, there's individuals on social media who are very useful because they share information. They post studies. They, they summarize like, Hey, this is what this study found. And they post that. That's different than an individual who posts a study with this, you know, blah, 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 this is wrong, blah, blah, blah. And then every other opinion, you know, every post they do is an opinion. It's yeah. an opinion, you know, you know, based on something. It's not this, here's this information, I want to share this with you. It's, I want to make you feel the same way I do about this. And that's a big difference in, you know, what we see on different accounts and things like that in the social media world. But again, that's a, a podcast mm -hmm. for another day. <laughs> Yeah, to some level, that's what's successful, right? I mean, no different than the news. They got to sensationalize everything. But that's how it goes. That's how it goes. Well, guys, we're coming up on that hour. Um, is there anything, kind of final points, we, we circle back to that neuroanatomic uh, idea. Any final thoughts as we kind of tie this up? My standpoint, I just, you know, us as a profession, we have a long way to go to, you know, not even our profession, you know, society as a whole, healthcare as a whole has a long way to go as far as addressing pain, understanding pain and addressing pain. And I think as long as you're a provider, regardless of which, you know, which school of thought you kind of go along with, regardless of how you treat patients, if you go into every patient experience, trying to get the patient better and with patient centered care, that's all we can do you know, make patients better and, and love what we do. And I think as long as we do that and keep trying to attempt to understand this rabbit hole that is pain, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll close by uh, one of the one of the most enlightening things I've ever I've ever been mentored on was by a, a guy who is part of uh, Maps, a part of Maitland's organization, and he explained to me the rules of three. He said that for every ten patients that you see, three are going to get better no matter what. Doesn't matter really what you do with them. They're going to get better because, you know, they're paint adaptable and they're, they do all the right things lifestyle wise, they're going to get better. Three basic techniques will get them through. So whether that's basic exercise routine, basic manual therapy treatments, you don't have to give it a boatload of thought. Three, you're going to have to get fancy with, you know, those are the people where taking your thumb and changing the angle just a little bit by altering that neurologic influence, Right. Getting to that point to understand that you needed to do that stuff is, you know, you're, you have to do that in, in 33% of the, of the people. And there's that one person that doesn't really matter what you do. They're, they're not pain adaptable. They, they're, they're likely not going to have a lot of uh, modulation ability through some of the things that we provide. And so there's certainly other things that can be done with those, those individuals. But I think that that, that to me, even though it was kind of like an off the cuff, you know, rules of three type of thing. Clinically, I would say that that's, it's pretty darn accurate. And I think that if we could figure out who are those, who are those, those individuals that we think are, we can help and we can, we can be able to identify what specific types of treatments or treatment categories those individuals would do well with versus who are the ones that are are not going to do as well with it. Let's not use unbeneficial resources, you know, on those individuals. So I do think that it, it's going to be a process. And I think people have to be, be patient because facts are going to shift. They're going to change and they need to change. That stuff has to evolve. If it doesn't, if facts don't evolve over time, we, we won't survive. It, we won't. We have to evolve. We have to change. Yeah. Cool stuff. I, um, I was at a talk, it was Cleveland clinic, I think put it on, but it was pharmacology for migraine. It was interesting when they look at how they treat migraine, it was protocol ish, but you start with this drug, 50% of the patient population is going to respond to that. Then you move to this drug, another 30% is going to respond to this. And it was, you know, more risk, more invasive, whatever. And it was just a progression, right? Of we try this first, this many people are going to get better next, 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 next. And, and I'm also curious to see, you know, whatever path your research takes, Damien, if, if some of that happens in PT, right? We you try this first, it's the least risky, if you want to call it that, and the progression down, but a lot of interesting paths. But I think, like I said earlier, this conversation is, I think, what's most important that we're, we're talking about these things. Well, guys, um, I usually like to wrap up. Where can people find out more? Damien, you mentioned your research. Where can people find out more about you, your literature that's out there, those kinds of things? I had, like I said, I have a uh, recent um, GOSBT blog that was published online. I have a, uh, a editorial that um, Dave and I, along with a couple others, did that was in uh, JMMT, I believe, in March-ish. But um, I'm also on Twitter, at Damien Keeter. Um, you know, I don't post a lot on there because, like I said, you know, I'm not trying to be that guy that's trying to give all these opinions. But, you know, I do share links to my stuff as it is published and whatnot. So um, you can always pull it up on there as well. But, I think you have to post. The people that are in the weeds and doing the research, like if that, whoever talks the most is the one that people are going to believe, right? Like that's just the nature of social. 
How about you, Dave? So um, it, you can always go on Google Scholar and just punch my name in and all the publications will come up that were that I've been on. Um, I do have a number that are currently under review. I have five papers currently that are that are under review at, at various different journals. So I'll be having more um, publications that are hopefully coming out here in the next couple of months. Um, and I'm really excited to to see what happens with with Damien's work. Um, I, I, I think that that's going to set up a, a it's somewhat opening a can of worms that we need to study, but I think it's going to be really important. I think that you can have a few um, careers in, in research in what he's going to be opening up with his, with his research. So I think that that's going to open up a really nice agenda for him as well as others to, to follow. Um, I don't do Twitter, but I do do Instagram. Um, so people can always find my handle as well. Um, so I don't know if you post that stuff, Nick, do you? Yeah, I'll link all that stuff in the show notes too. So people have links. We can put uh, we'll put links to everything so people can find it. Um, Damien, I will. I don't do Twitter, but I'm gonna have to check that out so I can follow you there. And then uh, I will say that Dave is posting all kinds of really cool stuff on neuroanatomical neuroanatomical treatments, uh, a lot of dry needling uh, examples and some different stuff there. So a lot of cool stuff coming out um, on your LinkedIn and Instagram, Dave. You know what I think would be fun too is if if I don't know if you could have people, um, anybody that would watch this that would has questions, whether it be patients or clinicians, and be like, so you guys talked about this. Can you go into more detail on this topic or tell me what the limitations are with with this neuroanatomical model, whatever it might be? Could you do is there a way that you can kind of filter those? Yeah, we'll put um I mean, just through comments, right? So YouTube, people want to leave comments on YouTube page or on the website. Um, if you're viewing it through like Apple Podcasts or whatever, you can leave a comment there or go back to the main website at fitforfunction.com and then podcasts. And then there's a comment feed in there as well. But I can put your emails in the show notes too if you guys want to feed direct, uh, direct comments. And Dave, Dave's going to put up his home address. He really likes it when people show up at his house and just ask questions in person. I, I was thinking his cell phone, but yeah, that'd be better. <laughs> oh, my wife would like that. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice house. People would like it. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. This was fun. All right, guys. Yeah, that was a cool conversation. Thanks. Thanks. Catch you on the next one. I'm going to go ahead and stop this.